Well, good afternoon. Before introducing our final uh, session and speaker, I want to take uh, just a few minutes to thank some of the people who have worked very hard to make this event happen. Um, first, I want to thank Marie Griffith, the Associate Director of the Center for the Study of Religion, and Anita Klein, the Center's Administrator, for putting together all the details. Doug Albury for arranging the video and uh, webcasting. Georgia Nugent for very wide-ranging technological advice. And Doug Yeager, class of 55, who has arranged for this event to be rebroadcast via satellite uplink uh, next week. Uh, you may be interested in knowing that besides those of you who are here uh, today, uh, today's event is being made available to viewers on 52 other campuses, and that will happen next week. Uh, and some Princeton Alumni Associations have uh, also inquired about uh, using some of this material. I also want to acknowledge uh, support for the Center for the Study of Religion from Princeton University and from the Pew Charitable Trusts, and for this symposium from the Lilly Endowment in Indianapolis. Our speaker this afternoon is Professor John A. Robertson. Professor Robertson holds the Vincent and Elkins Chair in Law in the Law School at the University of Texas in Austin. A graduate of Dartmouth College and Harvard Law School, he has written and lectured widely on law and bioethical issues. He is the author of two books on bioethics, one called The Rights of the Critically Ill, and the other called, the Children, called Children of Choice, Freedom and the New Reproductive Technologies. That was published by Princeton University Press in 1994. Professor Robertson has written numerous articles on reproductive rights, organ transplantation, termination of treatment, and human experimentation. He has also served on or been a consultant to many national bioethics advisory bodies and is currently co-chair of the Ethics Committee of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. The title of this afternoon's lecture is, Is It Human to Clone? Reflections on Human Genetic Engineering. Professor Roberts. Thank you. Thank you, very, uh, thank you very much. Indeed, there's been a change in the title. Sorry that uh, did not get transmitted uh, to you. It's actually Dominion Over Every Living Thing and the Ethics of what, what do we do here? Here it is. I thought we had the title there. By the way, I do have uh, copies of the PowerPoint presentation down in the front here. Marie, would you like to hand them out if people don't have them? might help you. I don't want to confuse things too much. I have too much going on here, but if you like them, perhaps you can uh, follow them. Uh, I've decided to change uh, the topic 
title because cloning for scientific reasons is too far in the future to be seriously addressed now. Let, let me say at the outset here what a great pleasure it is to be here and to be a speaker with the array of other excellent speakers we've had. It, it's been a, a tremendous symposium and I'm very pleased to be part of it. Um, the, the topic of what does it mean to be human and bioethics could actually cover many issues. And I was glad to see that Gil uh, Mylander went into some of the issues of, of extending life and controlling death rather than the focus on reproduction that many others have, have had, which I'm going to have. But I just want to remind you, as Professor Mylander did, that there are many issues concerned with being human and bioethics that arise at the end of life that we work through in various ways. And uh, they're on hold for the time being, but they will come back, especially the issues of assisted suicide and euthanasia. We could have addressed, engaged these issues with organ transplantation or now implantable artificial hearts. But I'm going to focus on control of reproduction and some of the issues that that raises. And there are many topics here. Uh, I'm going to give you a brief summary of where we are with these techniques, but focus on embryonic stem cell research and pre-implantation genetic screening. There's not enough time for reproductive cloning, though I could go on on that topic. And so for my text, if you will, since this was a Department of Religion, I thought I should have a text, perhaps from the Bible. And I chose the important verse from Genesis where uh, God gives humankind dominion over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now, Peter Singer would locate that ethos there as the source of our control over non-human animals as well. And perhaps disagree with its significance there, but I want to take that as a reminder that humankind, having been granted dominion over every living thing that moveth upon the earth, would naturally apply to control of genes and reproduction as well. Indeed, everything in nature that moveth, including human movement, and of course DNA and RNA moves in meiosis and mitosis, and transcription and translations. So if you take seriously that dictum, dominion over every living thing, it would appear to extend to the genetic and reproductive areas well, but even a simple country lawyer like myself would not take uh, such a phrase absolutely literally, would want to say, of course there must be some exceptions, and of course that control must have limits. We have the history of devastated environments, holocausts, and genocide, cruelty to people and animals, non-human animals. And so, of course, we have a tradition of constraining it within moral and legal boundaries. And so the debate is really about those limits. And Tom Murray and Professor Mylander Stout uh, brought us into the fray of what those limits should be. And so what I'd like to do is address repro technology and human flourishing and make the general claim that on the whole dominion over living things, the area of reproductive technology has generally been used for good. There are some exceptions one could get into, but I want to argue that control over the reproductive process is just a 
natural extension, if you will, of the creativity and ingenuity of humans faced with their environment here. Now, some disagree with that, would say it's immoral or, or unnatural because one is interfering with nature itself, and we had an interesting lunchtime discussion of that with the Princeton bioethics students, and it reminded me of, um, of a couple lines from Shakespeare, A Winter's Tale, um, where Perdita is praising her naturally grown flowers that have not been bred to bloom in winter. And the answer is, but why, why are you so concerned? Nature is made better by no mean, but nature makes that mean. So over that art, which you say adds to nature, is an art that nature itself makes. Seems to me to take care, at least for purposes of my talk, of the natural objection that somehow it's wrong to intervene in the so-called natural reproductive process. After all, we're part of nature. That's part of natural intervention. But I think there's a more serious concern with reproductive technologies. Uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, children are manufactured for specific purposes at the far end, but the concerns that Gilbert Mylander and I think Tom Murray shares these and many other people as well, that somehow repro technology, you're making children, they're not being born, that ultimately if you continue down this garden path, you'll lead to genetic engineering of offspring in a way that will be highly oppressive and bad. Um, indeed, uh, some people who take that position find themselves in the position or often they end up decrying every new application of reproductive technology or many new applications. Every new step then may appear as dangerously inhuman for what it will do to us or how much closer it will get us to that area of genetic oppression. Indeed, the concern is the slippery slope toward commodification of children as just mere means, never ends in themselves, and that we better halt that now or we'll be in serious trouble. Well, I don't think things are as dire as all that, and I'd like to pursue that further by just giving you a brief overview the state of the art of assisted reproductive technology for infertility and say some things briefly about genetic screening and then go on and look in detail at two extensions, embryonic stem cell research and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and see if they are further instances of human ingenuity within acceptable moral bounds or whether they're leading us down the path toward oppression. And I thought it might help, since I am going to say something about assisted reproduction for infertility, basically in vitro fertilization, which I think is now basically a maturing technology with improving success rates up in the 25 to 30 percent rate and extensions to donor egg, ICSI, and some other extensions that aren't quite as common that are become assimilated or accepted in the, in the practices, I thought it may be helpful to just give you some um, uh, pictures of the IVF process. Uh, many of you are familiar with it, but many of you may not be, so I thought I'd just give you a brief survey here of uh, what happens for those who are not with it. Obviously, it comes out of the need of infertile couples. One in eight married couples in the U.S. are infertile. There are now techniques available. 
Uh, actually, this is a representation of an artist I know in Austin, Texas, a ceramicist who was herself infertile and created this very big ceramic sculpture with this empty space here and the twisted nature of her body that she felt in dealing with her own infertility and thus found the fact that there's some medical assistance here helpful. But basically, we're talking about making babies here, the new science of conception, uh, conception in a dish, not a test tube, I'm grateful to say. And basically, you're familiar that uh, in, in, in vivo fertilization usually occurs in the fallopian tube. The oocyte is released. The sperm swims up. In vitro, the ovaries are stimulated with uh, hormones to produce more than the one egg that would naturally be produced in a cycle. They are removed surgically. Uh, fertilized in vitro, and then two or three embryos are placed back in the uterus, hopefully where they implant. Um, this is a oocyte that's, uh, this is an ovary that's been stimulated. Here are follicles, one, two, three, four, five, six, maybe seven. Could get seven, 10, 15, even 20 oocytes from one cycle, which thus leads to the surplus embryos that are frozen for later cycles and could be used for research or other issues. And then that's the retrieval process under laparoscopy. It's not done so generally by laparoscopy anymore, uh, by a more benign procedure. Basically, there's a, a mature human oocyte that will be inseminated in a dish. The many sperm that have reached the oocyte in the dish here trying to make their way through the uh, zona pellucida, the outer wall, here is one that has done so, and fertilization has occurred. And here we have a one-celled human embryo or zygote, and I'd like to say that all of us in this room, well, perhaps not all since the first IVF baby was 1978, and I have some friends whose children were born by IVF who are applying to college. There may be someone in this room who actually first stages of life were in a dish, but I, I dare say probably all of us were at this stage, but in our mother's fallopian tube, though there will be people who that first stage was in a dish, and then division occurs, two-cell stage, four-cell stage, and at this point, pre-implantation diagnosis might occur, one of these blastomeres might be removed and examined, uh, but basically at this stage, generally, transfer back to the uterus would occur, and for the excess embryos that could be frozen for uh, later use or other disposition, and this are the happy parents of children going through this. This is from an IVF clinic. They like to get their kids back every year, make people feel good, good PR, show how successful they've been. But that's basically uh, the idea here. Um, how do I turn that off? As I say, maturing technology, I think pretty well assimilated into practice an emerging, though not yet totally complete, ethical consensus about most of the issues. There's still some debate uh, about uh, embryo status, indeed fierce debate, but legally it has not proved a barrier at all. Legally the consensus is that issues about embryo status are not a barrier. And there's gradual clarification of rearing rights and duties of offspring in offspring if, for those couples who used a donor egg or sperm. And of course, there's some key issues remaining, maybe you can't see that there, about consumer access 
and protection, making sure everyone who needs it gets it, that there's adequate protection. And the UK and some other places have well-developed regulatory systems for that which do it very well. In the US, uh, it's, it's a much more decentralized uh, system. So that's where we are with basic IVF. Let me just say something about carrier and prenatal genetic screening, uh, which now is widespread as well. At probably at least 80% of pregnancies in the U.S. are screened at some point for uh, serious uh, defects in offspring. And of course, on the basis that some couples may choose to terminate the pregnancy. And there's some issues here. It's become well accepted, but there's some issues here. Disability community is concerned about what this might say about existing people with disabilities. Women sometimes, uh, uh, there are some issues concerning uh, protecting the right of women to say no to these procedures, not to have the tests automatically done as they often are. But I think if we pursued it further, aside from concerns about that it may lead to screening out embryos or fetuses and might require um, unhappily a termination of a pregnancy, I think on balance this too has been assimilated and probably on balance this for the good of, of most couples. So I may disagree about that. There may be some individual instances the other way, but that's, that's where we are. So what I'd like to do now is um, go to some current controversies and ask whether these extensions, basic IVF, genetic screening, whether they follow along with our assimilation of techniques within prevailing ethical and legal framework generally to do good for people, or whether they challenge our humanity in some basic way and are posing serious problems, which some critics of repro technology assert. And I want to I look in detail at the embryonic stem cell therapy controversy and then ex recent extensions of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and we don't have time for cloning. So let me talk about, uh, um, let me talk about stem cells for replacement therapy, which has been in the news until September 11th. They're back in the news because uh, for a little bit, there's now a registry. And of course, the issue here is that there's potentially great promise. I emphasize the potential because we're a long way from realizing it. Here. Um, but in fact, that the science is quite formidable, despite uh, the sense that some people have that the cure is around the corner. But uh, if the scientific formidable problems are overcome, great potential for a variety of diseases that human flesh is heir to, Parkinson's, perhaps Alzheimer's, cardiac disease, diabetes, a whole range of diseases, cell replacement therapy here. Um, at the moment, it seems that embryonic stem cells are more advantageous than stem cells from, uh, a, from adult stem cells. They're not as uh, pluripotent, it appears to be the case. And so we have the ethical problem. Do the interests in promoting health of people outweigh or justify the impact on embryos here? Uh, and that arises because to do embryonic stem cell research you got to get embryonic stem cells. Embryonic stem cells are not themselves embryos. Lee Silver may drop a footnote on this later, as is his want, but they are generally now perceived as not totipotent. Um, 
and uh, thus they're not embryos, but they can then form any cell of the body if properly directed. That's the, the challenge of, of research. And at some point, you might get them from egg act activation, parthenogenesis, uh, or perhaps primordial germ cells from aborted fetuses. But the main source that has been the matter of concern is from the spare embryos from IVF cycles. And those women who produced 10 or 15 oocytes, they were all fertilized. Two or three were placed back in the woman. Perhaps they had a child. Perhaps they did not. They now have many spare embryos. Can those spare embryos be used to derive the embryonic stem cells from the inner cell mass of the, of the blast blastocyst? It would require destroying the embryo to get the embryonic stem cells, and that's where the ethical bite, if you will, comes into play. And here we basically have two diverging views about whether it is appropriate to destroy a pre-implantation embryo in order to get stem cells for research and later therapy. And uh, we know that those persons who take the view that the embryo from fertilization is already a moral subject, a rights-bearing entity, with rights and duties, with with rights and duties owed to it, would say, uh, would say you can't do it. They say it is a new person, can't do it. The opposite view is that no, yeah, it's not a rights-bearing entity because it's too rudimentary in development to have interests, much less rights. There's no differentiation except for trophoblasts or the placental layer until implantation. The blastocyst, which I didn't give you a picture of, is the inner cell mass, and then it's starting to develop the, the, the trophoblast for the placental layer. Once the pl placental layer attaches to the uterus, then the inner cell mass then develops into the embryo proper. But we're talking about getting that, getting those cells beforehand. An important fact here is that it's not individual yet until implantation because spontaneous twinning could, could occur. So we have these two divergent views. I just want to say something about each view. You know how people, I'm sure there are people who hold both views in each room. Those who take the view that the embryo is already a person um, are taking a genetic versus a developmental view of new, a new human entity because there's a new genetic uh, entity there after fertilization. They'll say that's the key factor. While those who say, well, at least you have to wait until at least it's implanted or further along will be taking a developmental view. And one could go back to Aristotle for the distinction between potency and act, potential versus actuality, to find the recognition of that distinction. But for those who take the view that the embryo is already a person, they have to deal with the fact that there's not true individuality biologically until implantation, because twinning might occur, which it does in perhaps two to three percent of cases as best we can. Also, there's been no cellular commitment of those cells of the inner cell mass to any cell type or line until there is implantation. And I find it interesting that the Catholic Church here that has apparently stressed fertilization as being so important that it's perhaps unclear what the official Catholic position is. The noted Catholic bioethicist that Jim Childress might have referred to 
yesterday or someone this morning, Richard McCormick, the, the most uh, – uh, of the last 30 years, one of the top bioethicists, clearly the leading Catholic bioethicist, wrote a very important article in 91, what is a preembryo, pointing out that, in fact, there's never been a definitive church engagement with the issue of developmental as opposed to genetic uniqueness. That the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith that has issued important uh, statements on abortion and other things has assumed individuality at fertilization as it never confronted the problem of developmental individuality, which really doesn't start later. And I find it tremendously significant that when, perhaps it's not significant, when Pope John II met with President Bush July of 2001, the statement he issued about the necessity of protecting human life at all stages talked about human life in the womb. Now, I don't know if that was just an oversight because the issues of respect for embryos in embryonic stem cell research involve embryos that are not in the womb but are in the laboratory. So I don't know if this was the Pope being extremely careful about what the position really is or just a, an oversight. In any event, I simply want to raise the issue for those who follow the Catholic persuasion on this, that if indeed a doctrine is contested, should civil law then so automatically follow a particular position that, say, the U.S. Catholic bishops assert. Now, now for the other side. Um, those who view the embryo as not yet sufficiently developed to have rights or interests in itself. Let's be clear, they don't say the embryo is like any other human tissue, has no value or meaning at all. Indeed, they talk about special respect, that uh, there may, it may not be intrinsically or morally required. We're not dealing with a rights-bearing entity for whom moral duties are owed, yet they want to take a position of special respect that I understand as position of symbolically demonstrating respect for human life, even at an earlier stage before it is yet a rights-bearing entity. It's not that one is obligated to take that position as such, but it's one that people choose to take to demonstrate or constitute their great reverence for, for human life, and that leads to needing good reasons then to destroy or manipulate embryos, not for testing cosmetics instead of using rabbit eyes or uh, other mechanisms, but for good reasons. And they would find then something very close to what Richard McCormick and Tom Shannon argue, that there may be a prima facie obligation to respect embryos, but that can be overcome when there are good reasons, and indeed, perhaps, in doing so, there should be full transparency and accountability of who's doing research under IRB review. Well, those two positions uh, then lead to where you feel about the structure of embryos for ESL research. If you think that embryo lacks intrinsic moral status, then destruction of the embryo and use of the resulting tissue is fine. There are no moral duties owed the embryo, and this would be symbolically acceptable. You're trying to understand disease, cure it, reduce suffering. On the other hand, if you take the view that the embryo has intrinsic moral status, to whom uh, to which rights and do, uh, flow and duties, oh, then, of course, destruction for research or treatment is wrong because one can never 
sacrifice one life to save another. And that's the case even if the embryo is going to be discarded anyway. Just because someone is terminally ill, you don't have a right to kill them earlier than they otherwise would have died. And to really make that point, like an example from my home state of Texas, which recognizes capital punishment, and I take it New Jersey does as well, though they don't seem to exercise it as frequently, that if someone, a disgruntled relative, broke into the prison and killed the person to be executed just before they're executed, that would still be murder because they've deprived them of some amount of life, albeit short. So, so that's that position. There, I just want to follow out some implications of people who take the view that the embryo has intrinsic status, you can never destroy it, and ask, well, okay, even if you accept that, and I've given some reasons why the biology might differ, et cetera, but even if you accept that, what follows? If it's wrong to destroy the embryo, is it then wrong also to benefit from the destruction? Say if someone else has done the destruction and you've not been part of it. Well, that brings up issues of complicity, and I think it's important to understand this debate to distinguish what I would call causative complicity, where your, your involvement is such as that you cause the destruction that you think is immoral to occur versus beneficial complicity, if you will. You're just benefiting from the, what you view as an evil act done by others. And it seems to me that that basic distinction fits with our moral intuitions. Using the fruits of past evil doesn't mean that we have caused that evil or indeed are saying it was a good thing that it happened or that using those past fruits will cause future evils to occur. Oops. Uh, future e evils to, to occur. Um, and indeed, we have many examples of that. Uh, we're all against murder. Both sides of this debate are against murder. Yet if murder occurs and there's proper family consent, we use the organs for murder victims to save other lives. And indeed, there's acceptance of use of tissue and vaccines made from tissue from aborted fetuses. Even if you think abortion is a moral evil, if the abortions are otherwise occurring and will occur in any case, and thus you can show that use of the products has in no way caused the original destruction. And you could say the same thing about embryonic stem cells. Derived and cultured in the past, someone else derived them, destroyed the embryo, got them and cultured them. Now someone else comes along, they could use them without in any way having contributed to the earlier destruction, which they might find unacceptable. And indeed, you could make that same point about ES cells that will be derived in the future for other researchers. If they're going to exist in any case for other researchers, a close recognition of the distinction between beneficial and causal complicity might allow someone to use those cells, even if they think it was wrong to have derived them, just as you could use organs for murder victims, even though you're against murder here. Well, it's interesting. I think it's important to bear in mind the complicity point in discussing embryonic stem cell research, because it enters into the public policy debate. Let me give you what the basic public policy positions are. This is a major political issue we know in the, in the USA. It's a major issue in Europe. 
in Germany, in Spain. We have someone from Spain here. Spanish government is wrestling with this. Australia and Victoria and other states, it's an issue. European Commission is dealing with it. Basically, five positions here. The most extreme position on one side against this would say there should be laws against all destruction of embryos and also against any use of cells derived from them. And the German government wants to take that position. I'm not sure if the Spanish government's position is that stark, but it's close to it. The U.S. Catholic bishops take it as well. Uh, a second position would be, okay, if it occurs in the private sector that uh, private funds are used to destroy the embryos and derive the cells, that can go on in the private sector, but there should be no public funding of either the destruction or if it's been destroyed without public funds with the, uh, or any use of them. I, this, the Catholic bishops, of course, would support that as well, a fortiori. President Bush's position was there should be public funding of use only of cells derived with non-federal funds before August 9th. And then a, a more liberal position, more akin to the Clinton NIH position in pursuance of the congressional limits they're facing with, they would allow public funding of the use of cells only, but would not fund destruction in the future. And then, of course, perhaps the most liberal position here would be public funding both of the destruction of spare embryos um, to get ES cells and then the use of, of such embryos as well. And National Bioethics Advisory Commission under the able leadership of Harold Shapiro and some of the members, Jim Childress, Tom Murray, or here, took that position um, earlier on in the debate, and the United Kingdom recently has followed that as well. So uh, they, they're the positions, different combinations of view of embryo status and complicity. I want to just pursue a little more of the Bush administration position. Fund use only of cells derived before August 9th, 2001, as Jim Childress reminded me at lunch at 9 p.m. on 2001. They're thought to be maybe 64 lines. A registry was just announced. We're unclear about how the, uh, the availability and utility for research. There may be a need to create new lines in the future. I'll come back to, to that. What I'm interested in is the moral premises of the Bush position here, because in a sense it's consistent with basic right-to-life premises because it's using cells already derived by someone else. It may be benefiting from something that a person with right-to-life views might take as um, a bad thing happened, that embryos were destroyed, but if they're destroyed and the cells are there, the President Bush's permission, condition seems consistent with right-to-life views. Now, the U.S. Catholic bishops oppose that because they think that it risks creating, destroying embryos in the future, and therefore they would be against it. But I think we need to just parse out more the distinction between causative and beneficial complicity here and just address the Bush position. President Bush assumes that funding use of pre-August 9th cells won't cause additional derivations. Right? Do you follow that? The cells have already been derived. You can fund research with the use of those without causing future destruction of embryos. But if you use post 
August 9th sales, sales derived in the private sector after August 9th, that will cause future destruction of embryos. Well, I find that inconsistent. And again, Jim, you may have been referring to this at lunch as well. If the post-August 9th sales would have been derived anyway in the private sector by all those biotech companies that want to research in this area because of the profits to be made. Anyway, if those cells will be derived anyway, why would future, why would funding, federal funding of use of them cause cells to be derived that would not otherwise have been? At the very least, that's an empiric question that needs much more analysis whether that connection is there. And I place a lot of emphasis on this point between beneficial and causative complicity because it's likely to be a need for federal funding of research with new cell lines, perhaps in four to eight years, perhaps earlier, depending on how the science goes. The need is going to arise again. There will be very strong political support for then funding more federal research in this area with new lines as a research. President Bush has said he's going to veto any further, any legislation that would fund further lines. And I just want to suggest that when we reach this point, it may be that this distinction between benefiting and causing and following out how it's actually worked in practice may be a line, may give some room or purchase for compromise between the warring sides here. You think I'm being a little Pollyannish about that, and perhaps some of you think I am, that, that that's going to bear so much weight. Let's fast forward to the future, five to ten years, when stem cell research, if it develops well and has worked well and now shows great potential for cell replacement therapy, indeed, we've had some clinical trials that show some effectiveness, say, for Parkinson's disease, or diabetes, how are we going to handle with the issue then of federal funding of therapies derived from the ESL research that itself was derived from the earlier destruction of embryos? And I'm going to skip ahead. I don't know what. I'm going to skip ahead from issues of, of uh, histocompatibility and therapeutic cloning for the interest of time and uh, go to the issue that if cell therapy works, Placement cell therapy works. There are a number of issues of uh, patent holders having control, access of all patients to this. Would this be a wise use of our limited healthcare budget on these high-tech remedies as opposed to prevention? Uh, would it lead to increases in longevity that would jeopardize the, the Social Security trust fund? Uh, is this a, some slippery slope? And, and I want to just signal those issues but go on. What if it works? What if indeed it works? Well, those folks who have no problem with ESL research because it's for a good purpose will certainly want public and private insurance coverage and equal access. What about those folks who think that it's, it's a moral evil to destroy embryos to get ESLs uh, for research and use them? For them, there's going to be a personal dilemma. Suppose the ESL-derived therapy is the only effective therapy for their Parkinson's disease or their heart disease, or that of a family member. They will have a terrible personal dilemma of whether they're going to follow their conscience, if you will, and not get the only treatment that will work, or whether they will somehow find some way of saying it's acceptable. 
even if they take a strong stance on matter of conscience, that it doesn't fit with their religious position, why should that view control public funding of this? Do they really think that it would be better that patients die or suffer rather than use cells derived from destroyed embryos by someone else way in the past? Aren't there many worse threats to human flourishing? Isn't this a better way to protect human flourishing? I would like to suggest that when we are at that point, this issue of causative versus beneficial complicity may be the key, the way to negotiate this terrain, that the attenuation of the connection between the cell used for replacement as a therapy and the original derivation may be now so remote that there's space for compromise drawing on this point I've said. Well, that's what I wanted to say about embryonic stem cell research uh, here. And, and I think this makes, I, I hope this makes the more general point that if one ends up in favor of ESL research and society goes that way, is this a threat to basic values about our humanity? I'd say no. This is just a focused debate about what particular societies take as the demands of respect for potential life in light of the trade-offs. It's a debate about the proper limits of moral complicity, distinguishing um, uh, beneficial and causative complicity in research and therapy, and the role that public bodies should be there. It's, it's rather a focused debate like others here uh, and poses no special problem to our humanity or our dignity as humans if we end up then being in favor of. So I have a little time. Let me just go on to one other technique and try to make the same point about pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, uh, which is now done for autosomal recessive and X-linked diseases, the advantages it screens prior to pregnancy. Couples who know they have a one in four risk, say, the child with cystic fibrosis, sickle cell anemia, Tay-Sachs, rather than go childless, uh, they'll get pregnant, they could take the chance then the child will have the, the fetus will have the affected condition, undergo prenatal diagnosis and perhaps abort. Well, pre-implantation pre genetic diagnosis has advantage of screening prior to the pregnancy and avoiding abortion. Of course, the disadvantage is it's non-coital, costly, and embryos have to be, will be discarded. As a result, the pro-life side will find that unacceptable. A pro-choice side would say it's up to the woman involved. And again, I have a few slides on the procedure, so maybe I'll just show them here. Moving to my next set of slides. This is, uh, is that focused? Someone focus that? This is a micro, is, is that focused? Okay, can, can people see that? Ba basically, that's under a micro manipulator uh, uh, holding by air the cell here. This will be uh, then intruded upon. Uh, basically, one of these blastomeres will be removed and then subjected to genetic analysis. If the test is positive for the condition of concern, that remaining embryo won't be transferred. If it's negative, it can be transferred. And I'll just show you how that works. These are now mouse. This is now a mouse embryo here. Uh, it's held in place. The pipette comes up to take out the, uh, goes into the, embryo to take, suck out one of the blastomeres. There it's pulling it out, pulling it out some more. 
and then this blastomere would then be examined and the decision would be made. You can put the lights back up again. Okay. The lights back up. I thought I hit that B. Okay. So let's now look at some of the issues that arise here. And I've given you the basic background, and I just want to talk about some extensions. Because pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, again, people may differ about it, but it basically has worked its way into the arm armamentarium. It's not done as widely as one would think, but there's a, an acceptance of it for at least uh, X-linked and uh, autosomal recessive diseases, as I've said. And now we want to look at extensions of it. That's where the technology is now. Shall we use this for other things? And that's where the argument comes in. Well, that's leading us down the slippery slope to eventually genetic selection of everyone. We have to be very careful. Perhaps we should stop here. I don't have time about extending this to pre-implantation genetic screening, say, not for a disease itself, but just a susceptibility such as BRCA1, the breast cancer gene. So I want to focus on using, I don't know why this, I'm going to focus on Um, using this for a couple other reasons. And the, and the use I want to focus on is a recent one that's been in the press and raises all these issues, designing children, et cetera, where parents have a child with serious blood disorders where they will need a bone marrow transplant to get hematopoietic stem cells, not pluripotent stem cells, but hematopoietic stem cells to reconstitute the blood or immune system, maybe a form of leukemia, it may be Fanconi's anemia, Parents with children in the state are desperate. Their child, their loved child, is probably going to die unless they can get a, a bone marrow donor or a cord blood donor, but often they're not available or they're not a good match. And some parents think of conceiving another child in the hopes that it will be a good match. The problem is that there'll only be a one in four chance that it will have, will be that close HLA match needed here, and indeed, if the first child has a genetic condition, such as Fanconi anemia, it's a one in four chance that that child, uh, that, that the new child might have the disease of concern. So rather than having a child, which s many parents have done here, wouldn't it help matters if they could determine in advance whether the new child they conceived would be a suitable donor? Well, they could do that by coital conception and then prenatal screening, but then abort in a case such of that sort? They often would not, but then they've lost the chance on helping the first child. What about pre-implantation genetic diagnosis there? And um, here, there are several issues. There are embryo status issues. There are issues, does it commodify embryos? Will it work? Access and cost. And I simply want to say, focusing on the embryo status issues, obviously this is unacceptable. You believe that the embryo has rights, uh, has intrinsic moral status because you'll be creating and then destroying embryos. However, if you take the developmental view of embryos, early embryos still too rudimentary to have interest in rights, no moral duty owed to it as such, the question then becomes whether the symbolic or expressive concerns that uh, people who don't take the right to life position still hold would still arise, and it seems to me here Creating embryos knowing that all won't be transferred, only those that have the proper HLA matching, seems rather akin to standard IVF 
where more embryos are created than will be transferred, or standard PGD, where some embryos won't be transferred. And it would seem to me that protecting the health of the existing child is as good a reason for creating more embryos as basic IVF for infertility is, or avoiding offspring with genetic disease. So it seems to me that rather than threatening our humanity or leading us down a slippery slope, this is an extension, but it's one that should be acceptable, all things considered, for the parents in this very difficult setting who love their first child so much that they're going to all this trouble, and of course will love the second child as well. Now let me contrast that with another issue that's been in the news recently, that pre-implantation genetic diagnosis for gender selection which I think we can distinguish from the case I just uh, talked about. Now, obviously here, for gender selection, we get into issues of gender discrimination as well as embryo status, and, and I just want to bracket them out by saying that on the gender discrimination issue, use of PGD for gender selection is not going to lead to sex ratio imbalances because so few people will be doing it. Whether it's sexist or harmful to women, a major concern in this area will depend on how it's done, uh, how it's used, who it's used for. I want to bracket those issues out and say, let's talk about using PGD for gender selection only to create gender variety in the family. A couple that has three boys and will have another child only if they can have a girl, and this is the way they can be sure they'll have a girl. It seems to me that that deflates some of the concerns about gender discrimination. If you're using it to have for gender variety, often for a female, rather than for the firstborn child. So I'd like to bracket that out, talk about PGD for gender variety only. And if anyone wants to explore these issues further, it's, it's a lot to be said about them. In the American Journal of Bioethics, the first issue, 2001, has an extensive debate among many people about the legitimacy of that. But I want to bracket that out and deal with the embryo status issue. In this case, embryos would be created and not transferred if they're the wrong sex, they're the same sex as, as exist, existing children. So the issue is, does creating embryos for that purpose, for gender variety, create symbolic costs for those who view the embryo in developmental terms that are too great? Is this a good enough reason for creating and destroying embryos? They accept that creating and destroying embryos for IVF is okay, for basic PGD, or to get a matched child, but one could take the position that this is a less compelling need. It's not that it would necessarily be immoral, but in a climate where one wants to proceed slowly and be careful about maintaining respect for human life, even though moral duties aren't owed, one might differ about that. Indeed, professional societies that are concerned about their public image may or may not want to distinguish the two and say, well, let's hold off a bit here because it's not quite as compelling a need, though how compelling it is really would require further investigation of how strong the need is of that couple who have three boys and want a girl and would have another child only if they could have the girl. And that requires more investigation and interrogation. I don't think we know offhand enough about that to make the final assessment. My point here is that one can distinguish this case from the earlier case and say this would not necessarily follow now. 
And the same thing if PGD were available for non-medical traits of various sorts. It's not available now. There aren't single genes for IQ, sexual orientation, deafness, musical pitch, beauty, immunity, tallness, as Lee Silver reminded us. If there were, at that point, we would face the same issues, issues of embryo status, issues of harming or commodifying the offspring by unreal parental expectations, and, and issues of procreative liberty, whether the parental uh, procreative liberty would get that far. And I'm familiar with the arguments one can make, but I think it's premature to engage them now because we're not yet there and we have enough trouble in dealing with the other issues, at some point in the future, we'll have to face the issue whether basic procreative liberty, the right to have offspring, includes the right not only to screen out potential offspring with genetic characteristics that make them unhealthy, but whether it would extend to the right to positive alteration. That's a debate we're going to have, but there's no need to have it now. So to wind up here, my point here is then, my point here is that I think using PGD to get matched tissue for transplants should be acceptable in terms of embryo status. It's, it's comparable to accepted uses of IVF and PGD. PGD for gender variety and non-medical traits, at least at the present time, is a different matter. The non-medical traits, it's not feasible, but for gender variety, we're, we're just broach that debate. We need much more discussion about the importance of the various needs here to uh, say something about that. Uh, I, I, don't think I'm not, I don't think we're ready yet to fi finalize our statement on that, even though we are here. And that on balance, the parental concern for the existing child is a valid reason for PGD, for HLA matching for an existing child. Uh, and that the slippery slope concerns are not a concern because we can analyze each additional use on its own merits. And it doesn't mean that if we accept PGD for HLA matching that we're going to do it for these other means either. Each one will be addressed on its own or should be. Indeed, the biggest challenge with PGD, I think, won't be the embryo status issues, but making sure everyone gets access to it. The ethics of distribution may be more important about PGD for HLA matching than the ethics of embryo status, which of course have occupied all my time here. But when we get down to it, when we get through them, they may be the key issues. So inhuman threat to basic values to use PGD for these additional reasons? I don't think so. It's just, it's a debate again about our basic ethical, moral, legal commitments in a society and how they work out. In working at that out, there is a recognition of limits uh, and concerns for the, at least for some people, the symbolic meaning of potential life, if not the actual, the welfare of offspring, the effect on women, that the slope is anything but slippery here. The final assessment, dominion over every living thing that moveth, yes, that is the engine that drives our scientific and therapeutic enterprise, but we know that it's not free of limits and morality, that we must and often can meet existing ethical and legal norms of acceptability. Indeed, that's the challenge of our dominion over every living thing that moveth, is to define those norms and limits in a way that reflect our sense of being human. 
Well, let me then just close. It's a little poetry from the previous speaker, which I strongly applaud. I don't have anything quite as um, sexy as, uh, after making love, I hear footsteps. But I do have a line from um, a couple poets that I think are worth stating from um, uh, Les Murray, the great Australian poet here, um, who um, has a line that talks about DNA as life's slim volume, spirally bound. It's what I'm about. It's what I'm around. And basically the challenge here is as our control over that DNA, over life's slim volume, spirally bound, increases, how are we going to live up to our pre-existing moral, legal, and ethical commitments? And of course, in grappling with the new technologies, we are, to quote Frank Bedard, uh, an American poet, uh, in the process we will fill pre-existing forms, our pre-existing forms of ethical, legal, moral analysis, but in doing so, we will change them somewhat because we will qualify them a bit by allowing something else in. We will change them, and in doing so, it will change us a bit, too. That should not be an E there. It will change us. But of course, that's the challenge with being human and having brains and creativity and ingenuity for exercising dominion over every living thing that moveth. Thank you. Our respondent to Professor Robertson is Professor Carolyn Rouse. Professor Rouse teaches in the Anthropology Department here at Princeton. Her teaching and research interests include topics that bear directly on questions about religion and its relation to difficult bioethical decisions. She specializes in medical anthropology, visual anthropology, resistance, critical race theory, and consciousness. She has done extensive field work with African-American converts to Sunni Islam and with children and adolescents who have long-term illnesses or disabilities. Professor Rouse. Well, I want to thank Bob Withnow and Marie Griffith and Ann Klein. And I want to thank all of you who have stuck with mm -hmm. this conference. I think it's been a really great conference. And I want to thank our speaker for that really great, interesting talk. Um, Marie Griffith sort of reminded me that this conference sort of began and ended um, first with Shirley Tillman introducing and with me ending. And so I'm going to say sort of figuratively and literally, perhaps this conference begins and ends with women. That's perhaps a femme-centric statement, but I just wanted to remind us that, in fact, women are involved in this debate as well. Being an anthropologist, I will respond to John Robertson's paper in particular and the conference in general from, through the perspective of my discipline. I begin by positioning bioethicists as a subculture. Now anthropologists, what we do is we set out to try to understand how cultural infor culture informs the way individuals make meaning of their world, 
We ask questions like, why do you face east when you pray? Or why do you eat fish on Fridays? The answers reveal how a person positions their actions within their particular cosmology, ontology, society, epistemology, and sense of self. What we discover, perhaps 99% of the time, is that people believe their beliefs and actions are moral, and therefore their actions situate them as moral actors in their moral universe. But what happens when a society is introduced to new cultural facts, like cloning or IVF? We must position this novelty within our moral universe, which requires endowing new technologies with meanings that does not, do not disrupt the sense that we have of ourselves as moral actors. Enter the bioethicists. As new technologies are introduced, bioethicists, our secular humanist theologians, who aren't always so secular, are endowed with the responsibility of mediating between our sense of ourselves as moral actors, upholding ethical paradigms, and new artificial ways of creating or extending life. Most importantly, as clearly articulated by Childress, bioethicists must mediate the contradictions that threaten our belief that our morality is indeed beyond reproach. In order to mediate these sometimes difficult divergences between the material realities of new reproductive technologies and the ideals of democracy, pluralism, freedom, and innocence, bioethicists employ a number of rhetorical strategies. And I know that Shirley Tillman promised that there would be no rhetoric in this meeting, but where there's argument, there is rhetoric. So today I want to speak specifically about one, the use of authorized discourses, and two, the attempt to naturalize artifice. After I speak to the ways in which John Robertson pays tribute to these rhetorical strategies in an effort to situate his argument as consistent with our moral universe, I will then discuss how, in the case of bioethics, the material issues clearly overwhelm idealism. Finally, I will conclude by identifying John Robertson's arguments as uniquely attuned to the authorizing discourses of freedom and pluralism, which are overwhelmingly used to mediate between the powerful material structures of our society and American idealism. So let me begin by discussing authorized discourses. Childress referred to Rawls's background culture, which for my purposes I will refer to as authorized discourses. Authorized discourses are sh sanctioned discourses, which, when used for rhetorical purposes, are only tangentially related to the argument. They are used as proof, and therefore are not supposed to be held up for scrutiny. In this case, John Robertson evokes Genesis 1.28, dominion over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Robertson uses this quote to claim a hierarchy between mind and body and argues that what the mind can imagine, even the mining of the flesh, is morally justified within the Judeo-Christian tradition. In this context, it is irrelevant that a significant number of Christian theologians recognize embodiment as a more faithful reading of the scriptures than dualism. And, of course, we've heard repeated in this conference a discussion about the differences between Ramsey and Fletcher. But the reason Robertson uses this authorized discourse is not to point out ambiguity, but to find common ground with those who might disagree. And if we don't find common ground, the debate is over before it's even started. 
Former Yale law professor Carl Becker describes how if two people agree on what is relevant and methods for deduction, they can argue for hours, basically endlessly. But when confronted with people who use other forms of evidence and proof, and he gives examples, politicians and preachers, then, quote, before the night is well begun, the discussion peters out. We see that it is useless to go on because their thought is vitiated, not merely on the surface by prejudices peculiar to them as individuals, but fundamentally by unconscious preconceptions that are common to all men of their profession. Becker then proceeds to say that what the differences between professors, politicians, and preachers can be surpassed if we simply find what we have in common, which he reveals is Western philosophy and Judeo-Christian theology. And I say this only to emphasize that in this discussion and in this debate, there are more, there's more common ground than perhaps we want to admit. Well, bioethics is primarily a debate between just these groups, preachers, politicians, and professors. And Robertson attempts to find common ground by evoking Genesis, which defines him as an heir to a Western philosophical lineage. He does not, for example, use the Hanafi school of Islamic law that defines ensoulment of the fetus as occurring at 120 days after conception. This discourse, for the most part, is not sanctioned by most Americans, and therefore, to have done so would have identified him as an outsider and limited his ability to reassure his audience that a liberal use of reproductive technologies is consistent with our ethical paradigms. Cultural knowledge is not comprehensible in a vacuum, but rather cultural knowledge is relational. And authorized discourses are a shorthand for the cultural metaphors, stories, and myths that we use as a means of locating this otherwise decontextualized scientific knowledge on the roadmaps that guide us in our moral universe. Robertson's attentiveness to his audience brings me to the importance of recognizing the performative elements of rhetoric. The evocation of authorized discourses in a way to is a way to signify cultural membership. And by implication, if one is a cultural member, one is moral. I study the everyday practices of bioethics, and in my experience, authorized discourses rarely change people's minds. That point was driven home to me, studying the case of a family fighting the imposition of a do not resuscitate order on their, on their child. This extremely marginal family, both racially and ec economically, evoked right to life and family-centered care discourses. And while they never changed their mind, the minds of the physicians who believed that continued care was futile, the use of the rhetoric was part of the parents' performance of moral character. The performance of moral character was enough to legitimate the parental rights, which meant the hospital, out of fear of a public relations nightmare, could not send the child to a nursing facility where a do not resuscitate order would have automatically been imposed. In other words, the authorized discourses accessed in bioethics debates do not necessarily change minds, and perhaps Robertson did not intend to use this passage to do so, but it did situate him as a legitimate participant in the debate that is at once both secular and theological. The second rhetorical strategy I want to talk about is naturalizing artifice. At the base of a lot of bioethical thought is the assertion that the natural world is just, 
And after our lunch, I realized that I have to modify my comment a little bit because I guess some people were saying that no, it's not about uh, the natural world appearing just as a, a way to position bioethical debates. But anyway. But most ethicists have a strong belief that if one can determine scientifically the nature of what it means to be human, we can mirror nature in public policy. This would, of course, automatically make legislation regarding creating and extending life both rational and moral. Since Darwin published The Origin of Species in 1859, his descriptions of natural selection, species diversity, ecological balance, and evolution frame what I call moral Darwinism. John Robertson uses a kind of moral Darwinism upon which he constructs his argument about procreative liberty or the right to reproduce. In describing why some limits should be imposed on cloning, Robertson describes the problem of genetic advantage, quote unquote, which resonates with ecological concerns for species diversity. He also talks about gender variety when he talks about the ideas of picking a gender for your child. In addition, in Children of Choice, he says, quote, Although the desire to reproduce is in part socially constructed, at the most basic level, transmission of one's genes through reproduction is an animal or species urge closely linked to sex drive." Unquote. Moral Darwinism, which we can read as positivism, replaces natural law, but while it can unmask some of the presuppositions regarding the moral significance of the body as defined by Christian theology, Lisa K. Hill reminds us that sometimes the rhetoric of the natural disguises other power relations. And then I want to talk about embedding bioethics in stories. The unquestioned principles of moral Darwinism and dominion over the earth cross-referenced with the ideological domains of freedom and pluralism frame John Robertson's argument for procreative liberty. In the end, however, regardless of how well-crafted their rhetorical arguments are, or theoretical arguments are, bioethicists recognize the need to embed theory in stories. John Robertson portrays couples who use new reproductive, new reproductive technologies and doctors who assist them as moral citizens. On the Human Cloning Foundation website that I access through John Robertson's website, the benefits of cloning are described in a number of stories, and I want to read my favorite. Quote, a boy graduates from high school at age 18. He goes to a pool party to celebrate. He confuses the deep end and shallow end and dives headfirst into the pool, breaking his neck and becoming quadriplegic. He suffers chronic unbearable pain, which, yeah, anyway, I'm not sure how that works with quadriplegia, but um, that's my own ignorance. In any case, he's a poor suffering soul, or is he? Nope, the story goes on to say, at the age of 21, he inherits a $10 million trust fund. He never marries or has children. At age 40, after hearing about Dolly being a clone, he changes his will and has his DNA stored for future human cloning. His future mother will be awarded $1 million to have him and raise him. His DNA clone will inherit a trust fund. He leaves $5 million to spinal cord research. He dies, feeling that although he was robbed of normal life, his twin clone will lead a better life. And that's the end of the story. And there are many of these stories. And all of the stories portray the consumers of cloning as moral citizens with a sizable fortune, which is supposed to imply, in the idealized American moral universe, a strong work ethic. The corollary, of course, is if the consumers of new reproductive technologies are moral agents, then cloning is moral and therefore should not be banned. 
Clearly, legislative action for or against new reproductive te technologies will be in large part the result of morality tales told by people with diabetes and Parkinson's who will drown out the man who asked at a congre congressional hearing if his IVF babies, which of his IVF babies would the government take, Johnny or Bobby? As we can see, an atom is no more conscious or human than a DNA double helix. And one is hard pressed to identify the destruction of an embryo that has undergone 16 cell divisions as tragic any more than we mourn natural cell death that occurs regularly in order to maintain the life of our bodies. But as I said, science makes no sense outside the context of our elaborated cultural stories and myths. To conclude, I began my response by describing how bioethicists represent a subculture. As a subculture, they mediate potential contradictions between new technologies and our sense of ourselves as moral human beings. We see mirrored in the plethora of opposing bioethical positions our pluralism. So what agency do bioethicists have? While their arguments are quite elegant and helpful in mediating contradictions, their agency, I believe, is overwhelmed by material interests. For example, the human genome is being patented, which speaks to the power of special interests. And when embryos move from being private property to potentially being public trust, their status shifts. In addition, discussions of, discussions of path, passive euthanasia are often situated in hospital insurance cost-benefit analysis. In addition, I don't know about, if you know about Monsanto, but they developed these bug-resistant strains of rice where they inserted a termination gene, which meant that they would, give, they would sell the rice to these poor farmers in third world countries. And at the end of that cycle, the farmers would have to buy a whole new round of these seeds because the genes could not reproduce. There was this termination gene. And I think that these issues make stem cell research sort of an ethical cakewalk. And because as we see, the issues of capitalism remain fairly untouched in ethics debates about new re reproductive technologies. In other words, when it comes to issues of surplus or scarcity, material concerns take precedence over ethics and idealism. Therefore, the role of bioethicists, I believe, in this overabundance of contradictory bioethical points of view is to provide justifications for the choices made by powerful special interests. I guess some people might see that as cynical, but I think that if you see it as cynical, then it's time to start thinking about other issues in terms of uh, the material structures of our society. In the end, John Robertson cross-references legal discourses that I believe will become the dominant discourses in debates regarding new reproductive technologies. The American legal system, while not flawless, recognizes the ideological and material interests of diverse groups. Robertson's procreative liberty framework is well attuned to the American desire to protect the rights of all citizens, regardless of race, of, or, race or class. At the same time, it leaves the door open for the development of a regulated market. And for anyone who has stepped foot in a Walmart, I'm afraid, Tom Murray, excesses of choice do not seem to be a concept Americans understand. In this sense, I believe Robertson's argument successfully cross-references the authorized discourses in America that are both philosophically idealistic and economically pragmatic, and therefore are most consistent with Americans' perceptions of themselves as moral agents. As I said, bioethicists mediate the contradictions. Within a capitalist system like any system, there are contradictions. So what bioethicists do is exactly what makes us human. 
They provide a way to bring cultural meaning to new reproductive technologies. They do so by anchoring the mechanics of cell division in our cultural myths, stories, and metaphors. By doing so, they position us as moral actors in our moral universe. In other words, what makes us human is this conference, which has provided us the opportunity to make meaning of our world. Who would like to ask the first question? John, I'll ask you to also summarize the question before you. <laughs> that um, from what I understood, this is from someone who is a born-again scientist and working in science, but with a deep religious commitment that will these technologies lead us, rather than to be more like angels, more like beasts is how I captured it. Is that... Is that close enough? And, and will we lose part of our humanity? I think that's a very good way of presenting the very theme of the conference by making use of these technologies. Do we lose our humanity in some basic way? The, <coughs> excuse me. The thrust of my remarks was to the contrary. Rather than lose our humanity in a way, it's expressing it once again, in using our intelligence and creativity to deal with nature and, and improve upon our existing problems, I emphasized in the, the, the health care and reproductive areas. So, so I, I, I don't think that is the way we are going, though obviously there are individuals who could use these in ways that cause more problems. I think the general thrust of reproductive technology has been for the good uh, because it comes out of our 
considered traditions of, of ethics and law that require respect for individual choice and avoiding harm to others. Okay, good. I should have, uh, yeah, I should have said, in the ones that we've, we've the ways in which it's been discussed, for instance, in this conference, and the ways in which, for instance, uh, Professor Childress didn't actually talk, when he summarized what was discussed, he didn't include that as part of a summary of sort of the things that were discussed. Yes. Special respect for the embryo, which distinguishing the embryo, the pre-implantation embryo from, say, in some other human cell, a skin cell, is, is a way that people choose to define their relationship to potential life by recognizing that this is an entity that, if implanted in a uterus, could become a new person. Uh, 
but since uh, but it may not be, uh, and and uh, it's not a moral category in the sense that it presently has moral status as a rights holder to whom moral duties are owned. Yet we may choose to invest it with meaning as a way of defining or constituting our own relationship to to life, to to, you, to human life. And, and so I, I found, and, and I've used this term for many years, and I, I, I just don't find a better term for it. It's an occasion, if you will, a locus for people to demonstrate their reverence for human life, even though that life is not yet at the status of being a, a, an object of moral duty. Um, and I, I could go on more about that, but that's basically the approach. And when one looks at even people such as Richard McCormick or uh, Tom Shannon and other Catholic bioethicists, or others who talk about these issues, even someone as vague and undefined as Glenn, Glenn McGee writing about embryos, the need of how are we going to talk about and deal with these? I, I find that the, the idea that this is an, an occasion for defining or, or showing or constituting one's relationship to potential life as perhaps the best account that I can see. It's an occasion to express that commitment, even recognizing that it's not morally obligated uh, or morally obligatory at the time. Of course, individuals may choose to treat it that, that, that way, but, but it's not a holder of uh, moral rights. I hope that's helpful. We'll make this the last question then. That dark side, everything I put there was not my own view. I was actually referring to views of others in this debate, those who would argue that part of the dark side is even short of the Huxley and Brave, brave New World of laboratory-made babies with pre-designed characteristics. There are some people who view many kinds of reproductive technologies as per se wrong because the child is made, not born. Professor Mylander expressed that, that view earlier. So I was just referring to, to, to that other, other view there. It, it does, you know, capture the notion that, you know, one could end up using technologies in a way that would not have concern for the offspring eventually born. Um, but you know, that's certainly a risk that one has to recognize. I, I don't think that that's a, a, a major risk to date with how technologies have been used. 
The really interesting questions find this area will arise with the ability to manipulate DNA prior to birth, the way that Lee Silver was doing with uh, replacing chimp DNA with human DNA uh, in, a, in a routine fashion. When that technology becomes available, we have a whole host of problems of when it may be used, if at all, is it ever proper. Then some of the concerns of the dark side will be more salient, I think, and more important than, than they, they are now. But in one view of nature, it would still be natural, if you take the expansive view of nature, any, anything humans do is natural because they are part of nature. It would, not, it would not be unnatural. It may be wrong, but then everything that's natural is not correct. Um, as we know, nature read into the claw. Okay, well, thank you both. What you want? Okay. Good. The capitalist stuff. I mean, you know, I think we all.